Welcome again to the Real Life Theology Podcast. I'm Jason. Today, Dr. Carol Swain discusses some of the hot-button topics from current culture and how they're impacting Christians and non-Christians alike in America. She references the book she wrote for Renew.org, Countercultural Living. It's available now on Amazon.com as part of the Real Life Theology series. In it, Carol focuses on the Christian perspective for life on marriage, race, gender, and materialism. Did you hear anything relevant to today? Thanks for joining us and enjoy Dr. Swain's presentation and a great Q&A with her afterwards. Let's listen now. So as I said, Carol is first and foremost a disciple of Jesus Christ. By the way, that's the most important thing about any one of us. She also happens to be an award-winning political scientist and former tenured professor at Princeton and Vanderbilt universities, as well as the Distinguished Senior Fellow for Constitutional Studies with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. She's an expert on critical race theory, American politics, race relations. Her television appearances include ABC's Headline News, BBC Radio, uh, NPR, CNN's uh, AC360, Fox and Friends, uh, The Ingram Angle, Tucker Carlson. She is the author or editor of 11 books including uh, the bestseller Black Eye for America, How Critical Race Theory is Bringing Down the House, and of course her latest book, Countercultural Living, What Jesus Has to Say About Life, Marriage, Race, Gender, and Materialism. Uh, this is uh, one smart cookie of a lady with uh, five degrees, including a PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and a master's in law from Yale. Carol, come on up. Let's pray for her. <clears throat> Let me pray. Right. Kind God, uh, we just pray that you'd help us to think well, think biblically, to honor Jesus with our thoughts and our actions, and uh, help us as Char uh, Carol shares about the book and about cultural issues today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I stand before you as a person, I'm standing in this church, I'm not a theologian, I'm a person who started uh, their life uh, as a high school dropout, one of 12 children, born and raised in rural poverty, southwestern Virginia, married uh, at age 16, had my first child at 17. By the time I was 21, I had three small children. And so I come from a very different background. And the fact that I entered academia was very successful. I've had my work cited by the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, three U.S. Supreme Court citations, and today uh, the court is on everyone's mind because of the recent decision uh, in the Dobbs uh, versus Jackson case that, uh, that overturned Roe v. Wade and sent the abortion decision back to the 50 states. And despite, uh, you know, all the hysterical happenings that have taken place across the country, the Supreme Court did not end abortion. Abortions, you can still get them, you want them, you can get them. Uh, but what it did was it gave each state the ability to make their own decisions about abortion. And so if you live in Texas and you want an abortion, you can travel to another state and you can get your abortion. But the voters 
of the 50 states will be able to decide what type of abortion laws they will have or if they will have abortion laws at all. And so it's very important, you know, to really be uh, uh, informed about what is taking place in our culture. Because if you're not informed about what is taking place in our culture, there are many uh, false voices out there. You will be misled and you won't really be able to um, make good decisions for yourself. And so with this abortion uh, decision, for those of us who are Bible-believing Christians, uh, you know, we're celebrating. Many of us are celebrating. I'm celebrating. Uh, I have an article in the Epoch Times that was published uh, yesterday where I talk about my own emotions about abortion. And in that article, I share that I am one of the 60-plus million women who have had an abortion in their lifetime. And the abortion I had, I had it uh, as a young adult, um, uh, shortly, a few years after um, the Roe versus uh, Wade decision. And at the time, I was in college, and I learned in college that, um, that you know, that I had this choice, that it was my right. And I made that decision and I regretted it immediately. And so when I think about Roe, I have so many emotions. I'm celebrating the fact that it was overturned, but it causes me to think back to my own abortion. And when I had my abortion, I had it uh, at a time when I was, you know, I had started uh, college, but I, my thinking was undeveloped. And I was so naive about government. I mean, I was stupid. I actually believed, get this, I actually believed that um, if the government said something was okay, if they approved a particular law, then it must be okay. That the government's job was to protect people and the government certainly wouldn't do anything that would be harmful. And so I was naive uh, in trusting the, the government. And I now know, as many of you do, that Everything the government approves is not good, it's not moral, certainly not in the Christian uh, sense, and many of the things government approves can be absolutely dangerous. And so it took uh, maturity and uh, time for me to, to recognize that, but I can tell you that immediately after the abortion that I had, I felt guilt, I felt shame, I kept it a secret for probably uh, over 20 years. And when I did share it uh, publicly, it was after the 2000s, it was probably 2003, I had moved here, I was teaching at Vanderbilt, but I came to Nashville as a converted Christian, as a new believer. And, um, and as I grew in my faith, I became more and more conservative. Around the time uh, that I shared my abortion story, the state of Tennessee was debating uh, clinic inspections, informed consent. These are things that are important. Well, they were debating that, and I made the decision to share my abortion uh, story, first with my children. I have two sons. I told them. Then I told friends. My, uh, one of my friends in particular was a pro-life professor, I had always wondered what he would think about me. His name was Jerry. What would Jerry think if he knew that I'd had an abortion? And uh, I shared it with Jerry, and he immediately said, 
Carol, you must tell the world. You must use your influence to tell the world. Well, I wasn't at that point. My, at that time, I was dealing with it. I shared it with my children. I shared it with my friends. I shared it with Jerry. I was not ready to tell the world. But when the debate took place in Tennessee, I wrote an opinion piece that was read on the floor of the state legislature. And, uh, and I have shared that story. And I mention it in, this, in the chapter on life. And so that's a little bit about uh, Roe versus Wade that was overturned. And what was significant about that case is that it was never decided on traditional constitutional principles on the tenets of the Constitution. Uh, what the court did was look into the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, and there they found a right to privacy. And that right to privacy that had never existed before, but they sort of uh, 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 created it, that has been used to change our culture in significant ways because that's the basis of uh, the laws um, striking down uh, sodomy and also legalizing gay marriages. And, um, and so this, the issue here is that the Supreme Court is supposed to interpret the Constitution they're not supposed to create new rights. Uh, in law schools, and certainly among people that are into critical theory and, uh, and uh, postmodernism and some of the new philosophies, uh, they believe that, you know, cultures, uh, there's no absolute truths, and there are no absolute truths, and that um, the Constitution, just like now they argue the Bible, and I knew that would be next, is a live, it's a living document, it changes with the people. And so in this particular case, if you believe that the Constitution and what the framers meant, you know, when it was drafted, that all of that's irre irrelevant, that you just look at the society and the culture and you just keep changing it, uh, you go down... Uh, I mean, then, then judges stop being judges and they become legislators, and that's part of what was wrong with Roe v. Wade. And so that's part of the debate. I think it's positive that the court itself is deciding that, uh, that Roe was a mistake and that judges are not legislators, they're not supposed to be making laws, they're supposed to be interpreting the Constitution dig into um, the Roe decision um, by, by reading and watching, you know, different kinds of media and experts because the impression you may get, depending on which side you're listening to, it may or may not be right. But the key thing is what the court did was kick it back to the states. Every state uh, can make their own laws. So with that, I will move to um, countercultural living. Uh, this was one of the hardest books I've ever written in my life, and I regretted agreeing to do it. And I thought it was going to be a piece of cake. I think um, I think uh, I was supposed to write how many words? Ten thousand words. And so I thought, oh no, no problem. Five op-ed pieces, and that was the way I was thinking about it. But it was very difficult because I had to blend, I had to integrate scriptures with an interesting story. And, uh, and then speak to all kinds of issues that are affecting our society. So the title of this book is Counter-Cultural Living. And all Christians should be living counter to the culture. 
And if you're blending into the culture, then there's something wrong. You're not living the way uh, Christians are supposed to, to live. And I'm going to read a little bit from my introduction, and then I'm going to tell you a bit about what's in, in each chapter. And each chapter raises a question, it answers the question, and it ends with um, study questions. So in my introduction, I start off with the scripture. Jeremiah 29, 5 through 7. It says, Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and daughters, give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters, increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so the Israelites had been dispersed. And so the Lord was telling them to settle down where they were in whatever nation they were in. And that they were to pray for that nation and seek its prosperity and that they would flourish there. And I say in this book, sometimes it seems as if we as Christ's followers are living in a modern day version of ancient Babylon. If we follow the teachings of Jesus in societies where everyone does what is right in their own eyes, we find ourselves living outside the mainstream culture. Countercultural living for disciples of Jesus means living our lives in secular societies where our biblical values and principles are often mocked, disdained, or misunderstood. When our societies change, we find ourselves on the outside, looking in. We can find comfort and guidance in the words God gave the prophet Jeremiah, quoted above, um, through Jeremiah to participate in the life of the communities uh, and that as the nation prospered, so would they prosper. And think about where we are today in America. Christians have always been the majority in our nation. Uh, Back in 2011, I published a book, Be the People, a Call to Reclaim America's Faith and Promise. At that time, 78% of Americans uh, professed to be Christians. Obviously, they were not Bible-believing, cultural-following Christians. If they were, they would not have elected the politicians they did, nor would they have stood for the laws, laws that they did, but they identified as Christians. Today, uh, I was told by someone that that number is down to about 67% of Americans uh, profess to be Christians. And so our society is becoming post-Christian. And so uh, in the majority, we had rights and privileges and things that you could take for granted uh, when we were in the majority. And I can say now that being part of 67% in this society uh, doesn't mean, you know, that being a Christian gets you anything but persecution. And we're not used to being persecuted in America. We've had it pretty easy. And so whether we're at work or we're in school or wherever we are, being a Christian today will cost you. And if you read the words of Jesus, uh, we should expect that it would not be a cakewalk. It was never meant to be a bed of roses. We were going to pay a cost. And so in America, we finally get to decide whether we are truly Christians 
or if we're just people that go to church or people, you know, that um, uh, identify as Christian, but we've never uh, walked the walk, we've never learned the tenets of Christianity. That's where we are today in America, and we find people that may describe themselves as progressive Christians, and among the progressive Christians, you find more acceptance from the world because they're people that are walking with the culture. They're not uh, rocking the boat by standing on biblical principles. And those of us who stand on biblical principles, we're going to be uh, persecuted. People came to me and asked me, how is it that I was able to be so courageous, able to stand uh, when people were coming at me at one time pretty fiercely? And, um, you know, I've, I've lost a lot as a Christian, but I gained so much more. And so the changes that have taken place in my life, you know, I'm not a university professor now. Uh, God has used the, um, it was almost like every time my enemies attacked me and tried to push me down, God used that to elevate me. Uh, and one quick example was my um, social media followers. I can tell you that I, um, when the Vanderbilt controversy started, maybe I had 8,000 social media followers. Uh, I have 90-some thousand followers on Facebook and 80-some thousand followers on Twitter and various platforms. But it's like, and then with PragerU videos, they've reached millions of people, almost 78 millions of people. It's like the more people attacked me and tried to press me down, the more God elevated me, and God is no respecter of persons. And so people who do stand and don't back down, God is there for you. He sees you. He knows you. He's got your back. He's not surprised. And so if you're on, in your job or something like that or in school or wherever, you, um, wherever your sphere of influence is, we are constantly being called upon to make decisions and some of those decisions, we know it's going to cost us, it's going to offend someone, it's going to hurt someone's feelings, but um, you can know that Christ is with you. And that's the whole thing about countercultural living. You have to know what you believe, and you have to know why you believe it. And so uh, it is a time that we have to dig into the Word more, more than ever before, I would think, because uh, we're being challenged constantly. Uh, in this short book, and this is really a short book, uh, the substantive part of this book is probably 70 pages. Uh, in chapter 1, I examine how Christians should view human life. Uh, and it raises the question, are practices like abortion, euthanasia, or physician-assisted suicide ever acceptable for Christians? And so this chapter covers murder versus um, capital punishment because there are people that are saying, you know, how can you Christians be pro-life and support capital punishment? Uh, the Bible makes a clear distinction between the shedding of innocence, innocent life. Uh, one is murder, but the Bible says do not kill, uh, and there's a distinction, and Christians need to know that uh, uh, distinction and to be able to articulate the difference between murder and the actions of the state. Um, chapter 2 raises the question of how we should view marriage. Uh, after discussing the fact that God presided over the very first marriage, marriage was his idea, uh, the book 
covers the um, the biblical covers the factors that play into marriage longevity. I've been married twice and I have not had longevity. And in my defense, these marriages took place uh, before I was saved. So, cut me some slack. <laughs> it covers biblical grounds for divorce. There are some grounds for divorce, and so it covers the biblical grounds for divorce. It co covers contemporary sexuality and uh, same-sex marriage. Uh, and we learned the difference between marriage viewed as a civil arrangement with state and federal laws and marriage as a holy sacrament uh, ordained by God. And uh, I also discussed gay marriages and the scriptures that pertain to that. Chapter 3 explores how we should view race and ethnicity. Did God create differences that justify supremacy thinking and practices among different groups? We all know the answer, no. Uh, I discussed slavery in America, how blacks and whites can move beyond the current stalemate, uh, which is created by activists, because most of you all work around black people, you live around black people, and everyday people around you, we don't have a problem. Uh, this is uh, created uh, by activists uh, that, to divide people. And we know that Satan is about uh, division. And, but we talk about uh, race. I talk about our critical theory in that chapter, critical race theory, and how it's impacted the churches. And unfortunately, we have some churches that are pretty woke. They're totally confused. They're, they are becoming part of the culture. And that's one reason I believe that people are falling away from churches and they don't want to contribute to churches. And that's one reason why if you're going to be a disciple of Christ and you're going to follow Christ, uh, you can't follow many of these churches because they will lead you down the wrong path. And, uh, and, and that, will, that will be the emptiness and not the peace that Christ gives when you do it his way. Chapter 4 explores the creation of males and females starting with Adam and Eve. I look into uh, the concept of gender. We hear a lot about gender. Uh, does anyone know where that concept came from? Yeah, 19, 1950s, and it was a guy named, I think his name was John Money. He made a lot of money from that too. Uh, but um, he was studying, you know, different types of sexual attractions. He was a sextologist, a professor that was studying sex. Uh, but he came up with the concept of gender, which is different from uh, the biological DNA, male, female, XY chromosomes. And gender is different, and that's why there can be 64 or 67 or 87. This was a made-up concept at colleges and universities. And many of the bad ideas that affect the world that we're dealing with now, they came out of academia. That was someone's research. That's how they got tenure. Uh, and you need to realize that universities, um, you know, initially universities uh, were uh, started to train Christian ministers. Very first universities in this country, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of these uh, universities were set up uh, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. You see how quickly Satan got in there. But... Um, 
universities uh, were very open to ideas and so they were always fascinated with something new and part of what led to their downfall was that there were uh, people with money, the Rockefellers, the Carnegie and various people that wanted to they used their money to help push universities in other directions because once you take money from someone then they're going to be dictating fairly soon what you do and how you do it. But uh, universities today, I would say that they have totally lost their way. And the, uh, the universities, the Ivy League universities, those that are off base today, they were open, you know, to Marxist ideas. They were fascinated by ideas. And, uh, and so they made a place for the people that had ideas that now dominate those institutions. And so the Christian part has been totally lost. Uh, you could say the same about Vanderbilt. You know, it was a Methodist a school, and there's a man, I can't think of his name, he lives in town, but he's written articles some years ago about how Vanderbilt, that process of gradually breaking its Christian ties, it all had to do with money. Follow the money. The chapter, Males and Females, I talk about gender roles in the church. So I'm saying gender roles, even though I tell you where gender came from, but uh, there's this debate certainly among the Southern Baptists and um, various Christian denominations about the role of women, whether women should pastor or churches, um, whether women can stand here. Is this the pulpit? <laughs> um, thank you for letting me stand here. Um, the Bible has an answer to all of that. And so the Bible is very clear about the roles of males and females and even within a marriage, uh, the males and females are supposed to complement each other when it, when it works right. And, uh, and God, uh, you know, they're equal, but they're unique. And so, you know, many men that are in love in marriages will tell you how incomplete they are without their spouse. And just how when, when it works right, the way God ordained it to work, you know, the two uh, become one. And that's the ideal uh, but with um, the um, equal rights movement and the feminism and the critical feminism, uh, there's all this discussion about toxic masculinity and that men are oppressors and uh, women are oppressed. And women uh, uh, that believe this believe that they should be able to do everything a man can do. That's why we have women in the military in combat situations that did cannot meet the physical, uh, that did not meet uh, the criteria. That they are really physically unfit to do the roles that they're in, but because we're into social engineering, uh, we have allowed you know, women in the military, uh, and that could really jeopardize the lives of, uh, of, of other soldiers because all sorts of things, you know, women uh, can be uh, easily raped, uh, that women can be, um, overpowered e easier than a man and there are all sorts of things like that that has come because of the women's equality movement so we talk about that but I also ladies I talk about the church too movement the fact that there have been some male leaders in the churches that have abused their roles and I talk about the fact that God has never been a God that um of, of sexism if you go back to the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, God allowed women to inherit property uh, when there were no males and in the house, from, the, from their families. Uh, and he also chose Deborah 
to lead an army, the prophet Deborah to, Deborah to lead an army. And uh, throughout the Bible, there is nothing to suggest that Jesus thought any less of women. In fact, you know, he was, he opened up many opportunities for women. So when you read the scriptures, you shouldn't be surprised at the uh, scripture that says there's, there's no difference between males and females and, uh, and Greek and Roman, that we all one in Christ Jesus. And so we do stand before uh, God as equals, but when, when it comes to males and females, there are unique roles in the churches in a, in a marriage, a marriage itself that's ordained by God, it has a special meaning, and uh, all of that's something that we need to know so that we as Christians don't try to imitate the world. And uh, a lot of conflict comes when we do try to imitate the world. Uh, there's a chapter on materialism and how we should uh, view the pursuit and acquisition of wealth, fame, and fortune. We're supposed to love God with our whole heart, our whole minds, our whole souls. We're supposed to love God. And if you love anything, it could be even your, your spouse or your children or your car or your work uh, more than you love God, then uh, that's a problem. Or your stock account, we can go down the list. But anything you put before God uh, is materialism, and that would be something that is condemned. And so... In this um, book, uh, I am totally transparent because I believe that it's important to be transparent. Uh, I've lived my life in the world. I'm not a saint. I've made plenty of mistakes over the course of my life. Uh, I make better decisions now than I'm a you know, born-again uh, uh, Jesus follower. But uh, we're going to make um, uh, mistakes because we're imperfect. But those of us who understand that Jesus died on the cross for our past, present, and future sins, we know that we're covered by the blood of Jesus and that um, he forgives us, he loves us, he uses us. And so we have standing. We have standing as sons and daughters that people in the world don't have. No matter how nice they are, they're not in position to take advantage of the things that we are positioned to take advantage of. And so uh, that... Um, pretty much is um, a little overview of my book. And again, in this book, each chapter starts uh, with a scripture, with a question, what is life, uh, what is marriage, what does God say about race and ethnicity, what does God say about materialism, and then uh, uh, we, I make the effort to answer those questions. There are study questions at the end, and there are plenty of citations. So that's my overview. Thank you. Hi, my name is Marcy Scyther. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I am, we are recent transplants or refugees from California. Um, so, and I am a Christian writer. I'm very concerned about the 68% of Christians because of how many um, progressive Christians who are authors and writers who are pushing their liberal agendas into the hands and hearts of those in the church in our bookstores, through podcasts, through radios. And I've had one writer who is very active in the publishing world, and she is just one of many who has actually told me, God doesn't care how we vote. And I'm just wondering, how would you even begin to respond to that? Somebody who is a sister in Christ and who feels that in order to 
separate herself from her liberal views, mm-hmm. that's where she, she's drawn the line that well, it's okay co- for me to be a Christian, but God doesn't care how I vote. I'm, I'm more concerned about uh, the Christian leaders that we have known to be solid Christian leaders who have become more progressive and who have uh, become, uh, that are using secularism. So that is a concern. And I think that if you know your Bible and biblical principles, uh, you should be able to evaluate political parties because they both have platforms. Another question. By the way, I'm going to jump in there a little bit because uh, what the lady was saying about a lot of Christians going progressive, uh, it is actually mind-boggling to me personally uh, being in um, church leadership circles. But I wanted you to know, if you care about that, that's why Renew was created. Renew was created to uphold the teachings of Jesus to fuel disciple-making. And there are people out there who really care about what's happening and are trying to do something about it. In fact, that's part of why you're here. It's part of why Carol wrote the book for Renew, because we're trying to be a countercultural movement to that. As a young engineer that works for the state of Tennessee, I work for TDOT, just how do you know, kind of like you were saying, just what hills to die on as someone that struggled with the economy the past mm-hmm. couple of years, being laid off and right. just not having, having the I guess, structure or being able to, the fear of being unemployed. Right. How do you balance that with your principles? Well, first of all, um, I uh, have great, uh, you know, compassion for your situation. I came from poverty, and when I gave up my job and stuff like that, it was a lot of uncertainty. I think that um, just, you know, knowing that God, there's a, what's the scripture, put you on the spot, that the psalmist says, uh, I was young and now I'm old. I've never seen the offspring of the righteous hungry or begging for food that God uh, is our provider, and I'm a big believer in prayer, and I believe that if you're struggling, you know, financially, you're struggling with a job, right after this session, that some of the men and women in this church will pray for you, and I believe that God will give you your answer, will give you your miracle, because I've seen him do it so many times. And um, I think uh, when it comes to the, the churches and when it comes to the young people, uh, many of the young people of your generation have been indoctrinated. You didn't even know you were being indoctrinated, and so it's a harder struggle for you. You need the word. We all need the word, but you probably need it more than anyone else because there's so many forces within the church that are saying things are okay when they're not okay. But thank you for your question, and, and make sure you get prayer before you leave. In fact, I pray for you too. I, too, am going to admit that I'm fan-geeking right now. That you're uh, what? Doctor, I'm fan-geeking over you, Dr. Swain. I just think you're amazing, and I love you. She's a fan. I'm oh. geeking out. I mean, I'm totally geeking out that I'm <clears throat> talking to you. But I want to know how to counter the argument that culture gives you when they try to tell you that acceptance equals love. And that's not the case. Well, that's not the case. I think, you know, for us Christians... Uh, that it may be the most loving thing that you can tell a person is the truth. And that truth may be painful to them because it's not what they want to hear. Uh, the most unloving thing is to tell them, hey, you good. God doesn't have a problem with that. We're all going to go to heaven. 
you know, God, you know, is a God, he loves everyone. He loves you too much to judge you. I mean, that is the most unloving thing imaginable. And so I think that um, what the left says is false. Uh, they use it to manipulate people. They're the most intolerant people uh, now on the face of the earth, and that's why they're trying... I mean, I don't know about all the people on the face of the earth, but I can tell you that um, the fact that the, uh, when conservatives were stronger, they allowed free speech. And Christian universities allowed Marxists in, and they allowed, you know, universities were marketplaces of ideas, so they let all these ideas in. Uh, the people that they trusted had an agenda. And so if you look at how words, the meanings of words have changed, uh, that's all part of manipulation. It's important for us to understand uh, our enemy, uh, the parts of our culture that would manipulate us. And, um, and we can talk about a slogan, I hope, and this is not being political, but let's say black lives matter. Well, black lives do matter. And, and we're told that we can't say all lives matter, we can't say white lives matter, but we know with God all lives matter. That's a true statement. But Black Lives Matter is an organization. And so when you blur the two together, you can manipulate people. Uh, social justice. Sounds beautiful, right? Uh, who could be against social justice? Well, the, the Marxist forces that wanted to get into churches, they came up with that concept of social justice to blur the distinction between biblical justice and their social justice, the two are not the same. And so we need to not allow ourselves to be manipulated by the language. Uh, and the people that are doing it, they don't change that much. Their tactics are almost always the same. But you need to know what they're doing, how they're doing it, why they're doing it. And if you're a young person, if you're someone that doesn't understand critical race theory, you don't understand how diversity, equity, and inclusion how that's changed. God is a God of diversity, and I talk about that in this book. And, you know, God is a God of love. You know, diversity, inclusion, all of this stuff doesn't mean what it meant even 10 years ago. And so if you haven't kept up with what's taking place, you need to, uh, to bring yourself up to speed so you can help other people. You know, this uh, word love that you brought up, Marty, let me just say something about that because Carol is so right. Right now, for most people, especially Gen Z and the millennials, when you say love, love means that you accept whatever choices people make. Well, historically, that was not the meaning of love. But even better yet, if we go back into the Bible, the Bible gives us a definition of love. Now, I'm going to give you the summary version of it. Love is actions that reflect Jesus' grace and truth. And if you all of a sudden use that filter for what love is, it ends up with a very different place. So you mentioned yes. that they keep indoctrinating our kids. I have friends who have their kids go off to school. They come back as atheists and living alternative lifestyles. How are they changing our kids' minds so quickly? I tell you that it starts with orientation. Um, and the universities are very skilled at that. Each university uh, has its own idea of the kind of graduate they want to produce. And so if you're going to Harvard, they, the goal of the administrators is to produce a Harvard man or a Harvard woman 
a Vanderbilt man or a Vanderbilt uh, woman. The institutions have their own values. And one of the things I've seen done uh, that would be a culture, culture shock to Christians and conservatives is that maybe during orientation, uh, they would use the most flamboyant gay person or, or maybe even a transvestite to lead a part of the orientation. And they make it very clear that, uh, that their goal is to, for you to learn the values of the institution. And I think that you know people want to be accepted, young people want to be accepted. They don't want to uh, seem ignorant. Christians are made to, uh, to appear as if they're ignorant. And what we have found, and I have a book, Abduction, How Liberalism Steals the Hearts and Minds of Our Children, and it was written with a, a pastor, was that by Thanksgiving, Christian kids were questioning uh, their faith, and by Christmas, they were atheists. And so um, the university, uh, the left, they uh, have a model that they have applied, and what is scary about today is that it is so ingrained in K through 12 that they're starting with kids now in kindergarten. And, um, but I noticed the last few years I was teaching at Vanderbilt that students were different when they came to college. And how they were different was that if you were having discussion in class, they had solved all the great questions of the, of the world. They knew all the answers. And they regurgitated the leftist uh, talking points. They knew all this stuff. They had already been indoctrinated and that was, uh, I noticed that in late 2000s, that they were coming to college already uh, w steeped in the political correctness and uh, the cultural uh, norms. And universities at some point, I don't know when they, it happened. Well, I do kind of don't know when it happened. Um, in um, the 2000s, uh, that... Um, this stuff became much more aggressive and much more pervasive. And it started seeking in, seeping into the K through 12. And George Floyd's death, as well as the, um, the, um, the COVID, and all of the things that uh, took place, the riots and things, uh, and, and the parents being able to see what their kids were being taught, they were seeing things that some of us have been going on a lot longer, you know, many, many years longer than parents finally noticed it and began to do something about it. And that is the silver lining that came out of COVID is that for the first time, you know, just millions of parents across America got to actually see what their children were being fed. And that's why they had some teachers, even I think one in Tennessee, uh, that said uh, that parents should not be listening in on their children's uh, uh, classes because they didn't want the parents to, to know what the kids were being taught. Hi, Dr. Swain. Thanks for being here. Um, something that has just been sweeping across, I feel like, our country in the past year has just been the deconstruction movement. People of influence, you know, pastors, worship leaders, authors that have these platforms are now deconstructing and you know they're rejecting Christianity I've had that happen in my own life with dear friends who have just walked away from the faith and it's been hard it's been hurtful to see that happen I want to know if you've ever experienced that if you've known anybody personally who has walked away from the faith and what your response has been um, to that let's see I have not uh, experienced anyone for one thing I'm older 
And so uh, the people that I'm around, I don't see people walking away from the faith. But I see uh, people in churches willing to tolerate things that I think they should be speaking out against. And I think that when you have critical race theory seeping into the Southern Baptist Convention and, uh, and some of the other theories that are seeping in, that they're unbiblical and we have too many woke pastors and that's because the seminaries have been uh, infiltrated with teachers and professors that are teaching uh, CRT and different versions of it. Uh, as far as encouragement, I have had several young people approach me that were raised in secular homes, their parents were atheists, uh, the most recent one is Jewish and she on her own through God's leading she is seeking God. And so I've been able to uh, help her with readings. I'm studying, we're working in the Old Testament uh, stories. You know, first for her to understand a lot about her own culture, the stories of the Bible, what it means to be Jewish. But God himself is working in the lives of people that he's calling. And some of them are not from Christian families. They're not from conservative families. They're different races and ethnicities. So we have reason to be encouraged. And the lies uh, that come from uh, the, the progressives, they are lies. They do fall apart. People find their way back. And so I would pray for my friends, you know, that have walked away because they're walking towards something that's very empty, meaningless, and uh, they're going to have needs. And there will be consequences. And maybe your friend will find their way back. But there's a scripture that I'm sure Bobby knows about. I might not. No, no, you would know. You would know this one. I know the scripture. I just don't know where it is. Uh, that uh, where they say that they went out from us because they were never. Well, First John. Okay. That, uh, First John. <laughs> I think it's chapter two. They went out from us because they were not really with us, but show. But they're going out. Showed that they weren't. Is that the one you're thinking? Yeah. Of? And so, like, God calls people, and you know, we want to believe that everyone. I'm and now, you know, I'm not a theologian, but we want to save the whole world. But unless Christ calls someone and He reveals Himself to him, to them and they uh, receive Him, uh, then you know they're not going to be saved. And we have free will. We have a choice. Uh, we can walk away. And so you have to respect people's choices. Some people are going to walk away, and that's just the way it is. Not everyone. Uh, there's a scripture that says. Uh, but wide is the road and narrow is the path, uh, you know, the salvation, and few will find it. So it's not going to be everyone in the world. It's just going to be a, a, this remnant that are going to be on the right path that's going to find it and it, that's going to stay the course. That's good. So we've got time for about one more question. Uh, and then I think Jason's got some housekeeping. Let me mention something uh, just by way of encouragement to everybody. Uh, behind everything Carol is saying... Let me tell you what there, that there's two things that there's no substitute for. The first is that you're spending time in Scripture, learning Scripture yourself and knowing what Scripture says. The biggest predictor of somebody's spiritual growth, and this has been studied a gazillion different ways by a gazillion different organization, the biggest predictor of your spiritual growth above anything else is daily engagement in the Word of God. So we can all do that. That's the biggest protector for us, for our children, 
The second thing is to make sure you're a part of a biblical church. We're not saying we're the only biblical church in the community, but we're saying it's super important to be a part of a church that upholds the authority of the infallible word of God as the sure guide in all things and that that church teaches and upholds the Bible. I will tell everybody here two other things. One is at renew.org every day, as Jason said, we're trying to give really great resources to help everybody keep following Jesus. And as far as the institutions, uh, I can tell you that even Christian universities uh, are, are drifting very, very significantly. I've got a couple of meetings in the next month with Christian university presidents where I'm going to just sit down with them and our team and just say, what's happening here? Because uh, do you realize what, what's going on at your school? And then the, the other thing uh, about it all is uh, for us to do everything Carol says, and that's just make a real commitment to be faithful to the teachings of Jesus. Jason, last question. Okay. Um, thank you for speaking. This has been incredible. So as Christians, we all believe that life begins at conception. Can you speak to the messy situations where there's rape involved or there's um, where the, the mother's life is in danger? Mm-hmm. When, when is it okay to end a life like that? Well, I, I speak to, to it in this book on the chapter on life. Those situations are very rare where the mother's life is in danger uh, medically. Uh, the problem with Roe v. v. Wade, and there's another case, Doe v. Bolton, you could get an abortion up to the point of birth, and there were people that, uh, advertised, that uh, supported infant- infanticide, killing the child after birth. Uh, and so, um, and that partial birth abortion, you know, that was for late term, where they collapsed the brain to get the baby out. So all of these uh, horrible things were taking place. When it comes to rape, um, there have been many people, you know, famous people like Ethel Waters. You're not expected to know Ethel Waters. But she was this jazz and blues singer that used to open up uh, uh, rallies or crusades for Billy Graham. She's black. She was a product of rape. And so um, there are many people that were products of rape and incest, and that parents chose life. And I think if you're a Christian, that, that you would, I mean, I, I can't speak for anyone else, and, you, and anyone stands before God for their own decision, but I think that um, aborting a child because it was a, a product of rape or incest, that you own shaky grounds compared to the, the situations where the life of the mother may actually really be in danger. And so I'm just speaking, you know, as me, but I can tell you that there are many people that are famous or or gifted or talented, you know, that the world needed, that uh, they were not avoided. And I'm sure in this room there are some products of rape. Uh, And I think we're all glad to be here. Thanks for listening to another real-life theology podcast by Renew.org. Renew.org is supported in part by donors like you. If you'd like to find out how you can donate, go to renew.org forward slash donate, R-E-N-E-W dot org forward slash donate. I'm Jason. I hope you'll join us next time.